You can get early access to the podcast episodes and watch them in full-on video at patreon.com slash Rene Ritchie or watchnebula.com slash Rene Ritchie. So you were one of the very few people who reviewed the original iPhone. They gave it to four journalists yeah. and only four journalists. They gave us two weeks under all kinds of rules of secrecy. <laughs> Steve Jobs called each of us every day to find out <laughs> how, we, how we were feeling about it that day during the two weeks. It was a little like Big Brother looking in on you. Walt Mossberg isn't just a titan of tech journalism. He's every bit as iconic and transformative as many of the products he's reviewed. From 1991 to 2013, he was the personal technology columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Alongside Kara Swisher, Walt also hosted All Things D, the conference that brought the biggest names in tech to the stage separately and together. Bill, how about... The contribution of Steve and Apple. Well, first I want to clarify, I'm not fake Steve Jobs. Uh... <laughs> in 2014, Walt and Kara went off on their own and launched Recode, which they sold to Vox Media in 2015. Then and now, what impressed me the most about Walt, what made me want to be more like Walt, is how he bridged the gap between technology and people, how he deliberately avoided jargon or buzzwords or speaking over everyone's head, but also never talked down to anyone either, never made anyone feel excluded. On the contrary, in an industry now over-swarming with geeks and tech heads, Walt kept things relatable to everyone, and I just had to ask him how that all came about. I had become a tech enthusiast in my part-time. I was, at the time, I was working for the Journal in Washington. I was covering the Pentagon and the the intelligence community and the State Department and a bunch of other things. But in my spare time at home, I had, starting with a Timex Sinclair and moving on to an Apple II and then a Mac and yeah. then a DOS computer and I soldered inside and I I was on CompuServe forums learning about it and I learned a little bit of coding. I learned basic and stuff like that. But I realized that it took me, I don't know how many hundreds of hours to learn how to get the most out of this stuff. And when I decided to try to convince the journal, let me start this column, I looked around at all the other general publications, which at that time were newspapers primarily, and all the columns were written by geeks for geeks. Yeah. And so my whole proposition of the journal was that I was going to flip the formula on its head, write for <clears throat> normal people, main, what I call mainstream users, um, who know a lot about, I don't know, the travel agency business or medicine or, uh, you know, landscaping or whatever it is they do, but they don't really care what goes on inside their device. They just want it to work. And secondly, I was not going to be reverential about the industry, even if they were advertisers in the journal. I was, and they all were, <clears throat> I was going to um, attack them uh, for not paying attention to these people. And the column became, as you know, a, 
a very big success based on those pillars. You put up this tweet that I absolutely adored, and it was shortly after the MacBook Air was announced and the reviews started coming in. And a lot of the reviews were very technically based, almost like MacBook Pro reviews. And you sort of just gently reminded everybody that there are many different types of of customers and audiences. Right. So I think that particularly when reviewing uh, consumer products, tech reviewers, and you're a good one, and there are a number of other good ones, have got to wake up in the morning. This is what uh, this is just what I did starting in 1991 and did for 27 years. Um, I would I was much more technically inclined than I thought my readers were. So I'd wake up in the morning. Uh, in my case, I only reviewed consumer products. I didn't even review Apple's pro products yeah. ever, for instance. And I certainly didn't review any enterprise software or hardware or anything like that. But nevertheless, I woke up in the morning and I said, okay, I'm going to approach this, the testing and the reviewing and the writing as a uh, as if I were a normal person, not a stupid person, not a technophobe, yeah. but somebody who couldn't care less how many cores there are in the in the processor? What the GPU is? Um, how many milliamps they are on the battery? They do care how many hours you can get out of the battery. And I had a very elaborate battery test for one for phones and one for laptops and one for tablets that I did in, concocted myself because I thought the so-called standard tests were controlled by the industry. And um, I think there's too little. I think that some of the reviewers have strayed from that. And even on a consumer product, in this case, it was the MacBook Air. uh, They tend to look at it in highly technical terms. I mean, it's one thing to say they fix the keyboard. Everybody cares about that. It's another thing to go into great detail about how many cores there are in the multiple processors. It's fine to say there's now three, a choice of three processors, and that's awesome. They didn't used to be. And you can go all the way up to one that's really very powerful. The one that it starts with will let you do X, Y, and Z. I might recommend the one in the middle because maybe you'll need to, you know, do something a little more heavy duty someday and you won't want to hear the fans. I, I just feel that's the way to approach that. If you're, if you think uh, that your audience is primarily and only if, if that's your business decision is that the, your audience is enthusiasts and, and pros and enterprise people, then you can certainly ignore yeah. everything I've just said. But I think you're trying to reach, and many others are trying to reach a broader audience. And I don't think, uh, particularly now compared to when I started in 1991, reviewers are doing a lot of video and video editing, and uh, certainly photo editing, and it'll it makes them forget that way less. I mean, way less. That 50% of the people 
that use whatever brand of tech have never touched Photoshop, never mind a video editing program like lot, you know, never mind, you know, uh, Final Cut Pro or something. They are uh, not doing that stuff. If yeah. they're editing a photo, they're just editing it in the, you know, in 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 Apple Photos or Google Photos or, yes. or whatever they have. And so um, that was the point. And it's, it's interesting because we're right now the iPhone SE is coming on the market and there are a bunch of people who either, you know, Apple had them with the home button, Apple had them with the price. But then there's also a, a large segment that are analyzing the camera and saying, you know, it's not exactly equivalent to an iPhone 11 camera, even though it's half the price of an iPhone 11. And I, I wonder if that's the same sort of thing that in our hearts, everyone wants every product to be for us. And we have a harder time approaching products that might be for another member of our family or a friend of ours, but not specific to our needs. Yes, of course, it's natural in your heart. I'm just saying, as a journalist doing this, you have a duty to forget what's in your heart, depending on what you're reviewing. So the iPhone SE is a perfect example. This morning I got up and I ordered a red one for my wife who will only use an iPhone SE, but whose old one is basically dying. And so I immediately ordered her this one. She's actually not so crazy about the 4.7 inch screen. She'd rather it was four, but she'll take it. Um, And so I ordered one and she's not going to care at all about the camera. The truth is, The camera is way better than what she's been used to on her old SE. It's an enormous improvement, both um, optically and, as you know, in terms of the computational photography. She'll be able to do portrait mode, which, of course, she couldn't do on her old SE. Uh, She doesn't care that she she doesn't even know what ultra wide angle is. And by the way, my wife is maybe 2x, 3x smarter than me in general on everything. But her attitude toward tech is, and she's not afraid of it. She uses tech all day long. She uses her phone. She uses her Mac. Uh, she uses Zoom. She did a, a, a dance class on Zoom this morning. She knows how to do airplay. She does everything. But she doesn't want to know anything about how it works um, or why it works this way. And by the way, I don't think, I, I'm talking about, 80, 90 percent of people. Obviously, it's not like 1991 when there were a lot of people who had never touched uh, a computer. It's much different now. People have much more experience. But I think 90 percent, 80 percent, if you really want to be generous, 75 percent of the people still don't care about these kind of details that maybe you or I might. So, yes, I was well aware because I read the reviews, I read the spec sheet. She never has gone to the Apple site and read a a, a tech specs page. I knew exactly what was going on with the camera. I even talked to people at Apple. Even though I'm retired, they still talk to me. (laughs) So I I understood it. It's not unlike what Google did with uh, one of the Pixels, which is stay with one camera, use the software to give it additional depth and features. So the answer to my to your question is, you know all about the camera. 
you don't have to necessarily go into all that yes. for that very, very, very large audience. It's funny because my, my mother was a university lecturer. My father was an IBM engineer. My sister is a doctor. And all of them are interested in this phone because all of them like the home button, like the classic home button iPhone. It just it fits the mental model of what they just want that phone but better and they they're they're all three times smarter than i am and none of them ask me about the they just they want to know if it takes good pictures like all the sort of basic things right. that you just mentioned exactly and and when you talk about the home button uh, my wife has occasionally tried to use my uh, 11 pro yeah and before that i had a 10 and you know the gesture system is different and it yes. e- even somebody like you and i it takes a day or two to get really comfortable with it she has no patience for that yes. she says to me where's the button why is this how do i do how do i switch to the next app and i said well there's a little line and you swipe it or you move you know you can swipe it up and you'll see everything she she says i just want the button yeah this is ridiculous i don't yeah. want this thing and also, it's too big. So, and and as you know, the 11 Pro is the smaller one. Yes. Of of the three 11s. So, because um, I'm not a big phone guy myself, yeah. but um, so that's you know her point of view. She wants to get on with it. She wants to talk to her friends. She wants to check uh, social media. She wants to order groceries in this period we're living in. Uh, so she knows she learned how to use Instacart. You know, she could do it on her four inch SE, which needs to be charged every hour now. Uh, and she'll continue to do it on her new one when it arrives next week. But she doesn't care. And I, I think it's so important for reviewers, if if they consider this part of their audience to to just. It's hard, but you just yeah. got to transform yourself a little bit. And by the way, the worst thing would be to also talk down to those people. Yes. Because, like yes. you say, they're three times smarter than you in many cases, or at least very competent about things you don't know the first thing yeah. about. So you don't talk down to them. You just give it to them straight. If it's bad, tell them it's bad. Don't buy it. And here's why. Or, if it's great, you tell them it's great. Feel very confident about buying it. Or, as you know, very often it's kind of in the middle. And you say, if you're this kind of person and you care a lot about, I don't know, the screen, uh, this will be okay for, for you. Or if you care a lot about the screen, this won't be okay for yeah. you, whatever it is. But that's the kind of way you approach it. It's almost I found it over time to be almost like a translation job uh, because a lot of the jargon is just not meaningful for them like they do not care about an OLED versus an LED display but if they really like movies they might care that the movies look better uh, and they don't care about the megapixels or what type of focusing system it has or how machine learning works but you know if they if they find themselves in dark lecture halls or they're in some other environment they might appreciate that it takes better photos in a wider range of conditions and it's almost like you have to take all the all the tech specs and turn it into practical real world applications to into what they actually do for their work and then then it's relatable to them well their work or their life yeah. that's another thing people constantly talk about workflow 
And I understand that, unlike me, who because uh, I'm retired, <laughs> most people have jobs. Uh, even I actually have a workflow because I do a lot of work for nonprofits. But um, but people use these things in their just general life. They take pictures of their kids. They take pictures of their gardens. You know, whatever. So uh, those could be good examples too. I mean. It might be worth saying, um, uh, unlike some of the other Apple phones, which have a new feature that helps you take great pictures in the dark, yeah. this one doesn't have that. You, you might want to know that if it matters to you. Yeah. I wouldn't use the term night mode, and I certainly wouldn't try to explain it. I I've been guilty of that. <laughs> and it's not because they're dumb. They're not dumb. Uh, in the case of my wife, I would just tell you, she just doesn't have patience for it. She's yeah. not interested in it. She's very interested in other things. Yeah. She's in three book clubs. She's in, very interested in literature and books. She's very interested in uh, lots of other subjects. She's not interested in the details of the phone. Uh, you know, I asked the only choice. She made two choices about buying the SE. One was that she decided she needed a new phone and she wanted an SE and yeah. uh, and she would swallow the 4.7 inch screen. <laughs> that was the first choice. And the second choice was she thought red would be better because she'd be more easily able to find it around the yeah. house. And she, she actually didn't, doesn't know what or care what product red is. I did tell her that ten, I think it's 10% of the money goes to in this case, they've switched it to COVID yeah. charities, and she liked that. That made her happy. Um, but that was it. She made those two decisions, and then she asked me if I'd order it for her because she doesn't want to navigate Apple's yes. purchase page. So yeah. I said, fine. It's really interesting because there are and, – and sometimes it varies. Like when I was younger, I was really willing to work for my technology and some people are still. Like they want to they want Android. And they want to configure everything and customize everything and build their own PC and overclock it and do all of that. And then there are other people who have zero time or patience for that and they want the technology to work for them. They want it to be simple, easy to use. The constraints aren't a limitation. The constraints are an enabling feature for them. And I sort of sw – I used to have all those – you know, I used to build my own PCs. I used to I used to have uh, Palm devices and Windows Phone devices that I would put all sorts of skins on. Uh, and now I'm very happy just to leave everything almost on default because I switch phones and everything's always exactly where I know where where I where I left it. Right. Well, I was a little bit like you. I was a little bit like you. I didn't build a PC, but I was a little bit like you when it was a hobby. Yes. And then when I realized how much work it was and it became my job, I kind of flipped on that. When I was starting out, uh, and particularly, well, when I had the Timex, I, I, that's when I learned to do basic. And it was, because yeah. it was cassette tapes that it stored everything on. You, you literally went to Radio Shack when it existed and you bought an audio cassette recorder. And you loaded the programs. Uh, there were some programs uh, pre-made for it, and there were others you made yourself and you saved on there. When I got my Apple II, I bought a memory card. And the way that you added memory to the Apple II in those days, this was in the 80s, early, yeah. you know, mid, maybe 82 or 3, 
uh, you uh, had to buy. There were no dims or sims. You uh, you bought it. You went to a store, which I live in, in the Washington D.C. area. Around here, they were tiny little stores, and you bought these memory chips, and you plugged them into the board. Yes. And you had to buy them, of course, in numbers of eight or sixteen, whatever it was. I would always have to buy an extra chip and like an odd one, so I would bend one of the pins, <laughs> or or impale my thumb with yes. one of the pins. So you know, I did that stuff. I soldered inside the the computer. Um, I did that stuff, and then I realized people shouldn't have to do that stuff. Yeah. That was part of my revelation and part of my sales pitch to the wall street journal people shouldn't have to do that stuff and although many other papers had beaten us to having a column like this they all assumed that you were either a newbie who knew nothing or a techie and that there was nothing in between and my sales pitch to the journal which said okay we're late but we can overtake everyone which by the way we did yeah was um by by appealing to our readers who have many other things to do with their time yeah. and so I had kind of kind of a similar transformation to the one you do and by the way you know this as 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 much as anyone knows this this is the foundation of Apple this yeah. is the foundation of Steve Jobs uh, you know all the hue and cry about sealing the battery in was about this all the hue and cry about everything they've done taking out the floppy drive i mean i had an argument with him about that (laughs) the argument was not should you take out the floppy drive i understood that fewer and fewer people were using it i thought he did it one year too early yeah uh and i argued with him but i couldn't convince him so he did what he wanted to do was which is of course what he normally did and um but that's app. That was the whole. That's yeah. the whole basis of Apple. So you were one of the very few people who reviewed the original iPhone, and it was it was different, significantly different than uh, you know. I had a, I think I had a Trio Pro at the time, or maybe still a Trio Six Eighty, and they were Blackberries and a vast assortment of Nokia phones, and those were all very much more technological. Like it felt like I had to be a network administrator sometimes when I dove into the Windows Mobile menu. How did you approach that? You know, it was clearly a device. That was more mainstream, but it was a premium and it was so new. So I'll just back up for a second. Yeah. I um, never gave a good review to Windows Mobile. I gave many bad reviews to it because it was uh, – and before that, the power PC devices that weren't phones. Yeah. Uh, they were basically trying to jam a little replica of Windows into a three-inch screen Uh or, or le- no, less than a three-inch screen. And um, I had many visits in Redmond with the team. I invited, I actually, they got so frustrated with me. <laughs> they said, what can we do to get you to, you know, give us a good review? And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll clear my whole schedule. You fly your whole team to D.C., which is where I, I, I'm based, and we'll meet for a whole day, and you guys try to convince me that this is something that's great for average mainstream yeah. people. And we did that and nothing changed. I was a trio guy 
because to me it was the closest thing and not the trio with the windows os yes. on it palm os trio and in fact uh you know i was a big it turned out they had very little money for marketing in those days and uh they just reprinted a couple of my reviews and passed mm-hmm. them out at trade shows um and so um I, and I, that was my daily driver. I carried it everywhere. I downloaded some apps onto it. Uh, but you're right. It required, um, you know, even the, the, at the time, brilliant graffiti handwriting yes. system. And here we probably are losing people. <laughs> um, let's just say they invented a handwriting system that worked with a stylus that uh, translated things into text. And, but, you couldn't write an A. There were a couple of letters, one yeah. of which was an A, that you had to write in a special way. So when the iPhone came out, um, to me, it was the realization of uh, something I'd been hoping for for years. I'd been writing columns saying we need something that I called an information appliance or an info appliance. And by that, I meant an appliance. It's just like you don't. You have a refrigerator. You may have a basic understanding of how it works, or you may not. But you certainly aren't. Maybe you're different, Renee, but I doubt that you're repairing your own refrigerator. No, I am not. Or trying to. (laughs) And so to me, the iPhone looked like it was probably an information appliance. And I loved that idea. And I was lucky enough that. They gave it to four journalists yeah. and only four journalists. They gave us two weeks <clears throat> under all kinds of rules of secrecy, uh, even more than you now have come to expect from them. Yes. You can imagine. I mean, it had been announced six months earlier, so it wasn't like nobody knew what it looked like or any of that, but they still went nuts. And <laughs> Steve Jobs called all, all we all we had a reunion uh, a few years ago when it was the tenth anniversary of the iPhone, and we traded a lot of stories. Uh, this was me, Ed Begg, who then was with USA Today, uh, David Pogue, who then was with the New York Times, and Stephen Levy, who then and now is with Wired, and. Uh, we traded stories and we all discovered that Steve called each of us every day to find out <laughs> how we, how we were feeling about it that day during the two weeks. Um, it, and, uh, it was a little like big brother <laughs> looking in on you. Um, a nervous parent. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I reviewed it and the, 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 and it didn't go on sale for another, I don't know, two or three days. Typical, you know, Apple, the embargo lifts on a yes. Tuesday or Wednesday and the sale starts on Friday. Pre-orders start on Friday or something like that. And I went on television. I went on uh, the Charlie Rose show. I did a, uh, a long video for the Wall Street Journal about it uh, in a day when videos were not that common. Yeah. Uh, and I was, you can go back and read the review. I mean, I called it I called it, first of all, I called it a handheld computer. Yes. Because I did not think that the voice calling thing, uh, while I tested it and wrote about how how it worked, because I knew people would care, 
I did not think that was the most important thing about it. It was more important or more distinct about it was that it had a real web browser. You know all the things it had. So, um, yeah, I gave it, you know, and I and I dinged it uh, over the overwhelming thing for which I dinged it was the AT&T network. So when you look at the iPhone now from back then, is it sort of evolved the way that you imagined it would and sort of just the the complete mainstreaming? I, see, I've, back then, I would still have probably thought that everybody would have a little Windows box and Internet Explorer in their pocket. And now we live in an age where almost everybody has some flavor of Unix or Linux in their pocket and some form of KHTML-based browser. I, d- I would never have expected that. But the proliferation of apps, uh, you know, apps becoming part of popular culture. And I, I, right now, we're all at home. And I, I don't think I could exist at home, or it'd be a very different existence at home if we didn't all have ubiquitous internet connected devices around us. Well, that's for sure. I, I, um, I was different from you. Once I saw it, and once I used it, I never, ever thought anyone would have a Windows box in their pocket eventually. Not right away. I knew it would take a little time. But uh, not only did I think nobody would have a Windows box, but I thought uh, Microsoft would have to. I honestly imagine, and I eventually got to talk to Steve Ballmer about this at some length, I uh, off the record, I actually thought... um, that Microsoft would have called an emergency all hands meeting in January, which was yeah. when the, when the iPhone was uh, unveiled, but but not. But it was six months before it went on sale. It gave everybody else six months to figure yeah. out what to do about it. And I honestly thought Bomber would have called an all hands meeting and said, "This is going to change everything. We have to figure out what we're going to do about it." He didn't do that, and. Um, uh, he told me the thing. I, I thought that the mocking of the iPhone, which he did in public, yes. was just for public. Steve Jobs goes to Macworld and he, he pulls out this iPhone. What was your first reaction when you saw that? <laughs> $500 fully subsidized with a plan? I said, that is the most expensive phone in the world. And it doesn't appeal to business customers because it doesn't have a keyboard, which makes it not a very good email machine. Because he was, you know, Steve Ballmer was a, a boisterous. Yeah. He, he was he, he was and is extremely intelligent, but he was a kind of sales guy. And, you know, you can find the videos of him. Jumping around on stage, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, It turned out that his private feelings about the iPhone were very much the same as the public feelings. It would be a failure, cost too much, and and most importantly, enterprises wouldn't want it. And that was true because he primarily cared about enterprises um, as customers. And... uh, it was true that they didn't want it for a few years until they really wanted it. Yes. Um, I can remember – now I'm skipping ahead. I don't remember which version of the iPhone this was in. I'll bet you do. At one point, uh, Microsoft was forced to license Exchange yeah. to Apple. And the way that Microsoft distributed – and for those who are watching this who may not be – techies 
Exchange was Microsoft's way of kind of networking everything. And, you know, it, it was the underlying layer of their email and, you know. It was push email, out, right? It was like competitive with BlackBerry right, sort of all push that email. stuff. Yeah. And, and most corporations at that time were based around Exchange because Google didn't have a whole – didn't may not have – I don't think it had any – enterprise stuff yet at that time and so microsoft had to license this to apple and the way microsoft distributed exchange was you had to buy office so windows and office and there are a lot of consumers who don't understand this uh because they buy uh windows laptops where it's all bundled yeah. But Windows and Office are not a bundled product. We're not in those days, at least. Uh, you bought – and went, this is a time when they were not subscription products or anything yes. like that. They were standalone products. You could buy a Windows computer that didn't have Office or you could buy a Windows computer that did have Office or you could buy a Windows computer and later buy Office. Yeah. But until you bought Office, you did not have Exchange. Apple took their Exchange license – and built it right into the OS. Yeah. And every iPhone and eventually Macs and, and uh, eventually iPads had Exchange right out of the box. You didn't yeah. have to buy anything extra. And so I can remember when that happened and I had to review that iPhone with Exchange, I wasn't using – in my company they used – which was the publisher of the Wall Street Journal – they used Exchange, but I refused to use Exchange, and I just used regular email. Yeah, I can't even remember what email it was at the time. And uh, so I, I called the head of IT at the company, who I rarely spoke to, and I said – because I didn't need help. Because yeah. I – you know why? Because I did everything on Macs. Yes. <laughs> I did everything on Macs. And they didn't know – they had one guy who knew something about Max, and – but I didn't need his help because if I really ran into a bad problem, I just called somebody at Apple. Um, but I called them and I said, OK, now they have Exchange and I'm not connected to our Exchange system. And I said, would it be OK with you? Would you, would you get somebody to help me just, just for email? Just have me – get on exchange email and he said would it be okay he said i have 50 people right now begging me to put their iphones on exchange and i can't get an iphone with exchange yet because i had it early as a reviewer and he couldn't get one he said can you get me one i said no i can't get you one he said okay well i'll get somebody to call you right away and we'll get you on it because your experience with it will help me figure out how our system works with it. And that's what he, 10 minutes later, somebody called me. Tangent, Walt and I also share a passion for privacy and what it takes from all of us to maintain it now and into the future. I left Facebook because I was deeply uncomfortable with the policies of the company. It wasn't features of the app or features of Instagram. I left all their properties because I know the company, I know Zuckerberg, I know Sheryl Sandberg, I know 
a bunch of the other people there. Uh, and um, I just felt they they were not taking privacy seriously. And then there was Cambridge Analytica and the yeah. election interference and all that stuff. And I just felt I couldn't in good conscience continue to be. It, it, it wasn't me spending my money so much because it was it's free, but I didn't want to be part of it. Yeah. So I left. Same. Uh, the reason I went back on and you're right, there is a balance there is that while I haven't changed my view about the company, I mean, people I know are, are getting very ill or dying. And some of those people are only reachable on Facebook. And so what I explained was I'm going on for the duration, back on for the duration of the pandemic without changing any of my views yeah. because that balance has shifted because we're in a, absolutely unprecedented in our lifetime, at least, uh, pandemic. And I didn't foresee there would be a pandemic in 2018 when I left. And, um, but I also said, I'm going to quit as soon as the pandemic's over. And I am, I'm going to deactivate my accounts again after the pandemic's over. Um, Zoom is a different thing. I wrote the first review of Zoom uh, I, I reviewed it when it was in pre-release, uh, but by the time my column ran, version 1.0 was okay. was out. I talked to them quite a bit when they were doing it. At the time, Skype uh, re- required you to pay like I want to say ten bucks a month to be able to. I may be getting this wrong, but they it, it was a paid version of Skype. Yeah that you had to have in order to have a group. But Zoom allowed you to have 15 people. And there was, my recollection is there was no time limit of 40 minutes in those days in 2012. I could be wrong. Somebody will correct me. Uh, But it was a, you could have 15 of your friends in a a very good high quality video conference thing for free. Uh, now they also had an enterprise plan. They may, uh, and I just didn't pay attention to it. I just wrote about the consumer application of it, and then you know I used it once in a while uh, for work. Uh, the company I work, I work, wound up, uh, you know, I wound up leaving the journal, starting yeah. my own company. And we sold that company to Box Media. They use Zoom, so I would occasionally, and I worked remotely, so I would be on Zoom. Never, I never heard about any privacy problems or anything like that. Obviously, I'm aware of what's been going on, but I also know the people that run the company, and I take them at their word that they're fixing this stuff. They've already patched several of the worst problems, and they've given themselves 90 days to fix it, and the CEO has an AMA blog and all that kind of stuff. So I don't worry about it too much. I think the biggest issue with Zoom uh, security where you get Zoom bombed is if you have to publish the link broadly. But like we had a Passover Seder with our family. There were seven people at it. Yeah. We used iMessage, which is highly secure, to, uh, to send out the Zoom link. 
Yeah. And, you know, nobody was going to break into, even if they wanted to break into our tiny little group, <laughs> nobody was going to be able to do it. Yeah. So, and, and we don't sign in with Facebook. I haven't signed in with Facebook or Google into any app. In fact, I, I deleted all my apps from, from Facebook and all my third party apps from Facebook and Google a long time ago. And so, um, you know, I feel re reasonably good about Zoom. If they fail, I'm sure somebody will take their place. But if you think I trust Blue Jeans yeah. now that it's been acquired by Verizon, you're wrong. Yeah. And Google's never had a coherent, like they had Hangouts and Google Meet and eight or nine different, it feels like eight or nine different platforms. I, I'm years. sure it works. I haven't tried it yet. No one has, uh, none of the meetings I have at, the News Literacy Project, which is yeah. the nonprofit I'm I'm mainly involved with, they use Zoom, and uh, nobody's invited me to a Google Meet yet. So I don't know in in the current period. So I don't know what it's like. It's I I wonder, and do you worry that you know I, I'm very similar to you? I don't I, my the deal I sort of made with myself is I won't actively engage with anybody over Facebook, but if my family or friends reach out, you know I'll, I'm not refusing to engage with them. I'll absolutely answer them back, and I'll you know I'll be with them as much as I can. But do you worry that when when this changes, we won't go back? Like we're we're getting tracker apps. Some countries are doing more tracking now. Um, there's a lot more information being collected. Do you worry that that we'll just not forget about privacy, but de-escalate it, and it won't return to higher levels uh, when the pandemic ends? I don't. Um, I think there's a uh, likelihood that there will be more virtual video work uh, like what we're doing now. But I think people are way ahead of themselves predicting you know work will never be the same yeah offices will never be the same i i you know it depends how long if, if god forbid this is a five-year pandemic which yeah. i don't think it will be but even if it's a one-year pandemic uh i don't think that's going to change hundreds of years a hundred or a, let's say a hundred years of people uh working in person um There'll be a little more of this, but there already was a bunch of this. In terms of privacy, uh, I think there's still um, tremendous interest in it. I know I will remain a privacy hawk, yes. and I think a lot of other people will as also. And as you know very well, and here I'm, we're not going to go into technical details, <laughs> even even though there are three white papers about it, the Apple, Google uh contact tracing thing has some extremely elaborate multi-layered and i would yes. say pretty clever privacy protections built into it uh and um so the question there is will it be turned off even though it's quite private and they have said they're going to turn it off after its contact tracing function is no longer needed and we'll see. All right. So last thing, Walt, what are you up to these days? So I retired two and a half years ago, and I am deeply involved in something called the News Literacy Project, 
which is based here in D.C., but is used uh, is active in all 50 states and in over 100 countries, including Canada. And um, what we do is we teach middle school and high school students how to tell fact from fiction in what they see online. Uh, And we have a curriculum that's all digital, uh, all virtual, which is perfect for the current period, but it's it's been in that way. It's called Checkology. uh, And we are now making it free to teachers that are teaching virtually and to parents who are doing homeschooling. We also do what we call news lit camps where we bring and we're obviously not doing this now, but we will resume it uh, where we bring teachers from school districts into newsrooms of their local uh, news organizations, whether they be radio stations, TV stations, uh, newspapers, whatever they are, to have interchanges with journalists, to understand journalism, to understand what quality news is. Yes. To understand what's in the First Amendment. So I'm very, very involved with that. And uh, it's been a great uh, way to spend my retirement. Uh, and thank you for doing it, because there is very few things that are as important as teaching those skills to people, especially in the age we live in now. Well, and particularly with the pandemic, there's yeah. pen- the pandemic and the U.S. election combined mean there's a gigantic surge of false information, some of it coming from places like Russia some of it coming from political extremists, some of it coming from people who want to make money. Yes. Uh, and and we feel uh, like we need to help people understand how to tell fact from fiction. So we work on kids, but we're also uh, expanding more and more into working on the general population and giving them uh, tips for how to judge what they see before they share it again. Thanks for watching. Check out Walt on Twitter and make sure you check out the rest of this podcast series for more great interviews. See you next video. And remember, you can get early access to these podcast episodes and watch them in full-on video via patreon.com slash Ritchie or watchnebula.com slash Ritchie. Early access Patreon members also get to see scripts for most of the daily shows before they're even shot, as well as Discord, where we chat about Apple, gear, workflows, and more. And there are even ways to get your name in the description of every video or the credits. So if you want to be more involved in this community and contribute directly to the creation of these videos in future projects, check out patreon.com slash Renee Ritchie. And thanks sincerely for your support. None of this would be possible without you.